Brothers and sisters, happy Sunday. Let us pray. Holy God, by your spirit, guide my words and open our hearts. Amen. About five or six years ago, I took a special class from the United Church of Christ about the perils of social media. I didn't need that class. I knew all about the perils of social media. I think it's a plague. It doesn't appear anywhere in the book of Revelation, but I'm certain of it. One of the suggestions that they had is that if you're a church pastor, you should have a personal Facebook page and a professional Facebook page. Well, this is confusing for me because I just kind of am who I am. I don't have a brand, so to speak. But I dutifully made a professional Facebook page, and I never really checked on it. This past week, uh, my phone kept bugging me about something that was going on on Facebook. And I had to log in and figure out. And it was my professional Facebook page, the one that I hadn't really paid attention to for a long time. What had happened was, sometime back, I had put a photograph on my professional Facebook page. And it said, uh, under the photograph, it said simply, God is trans. And by trans, meaning transgender. And I put that up there in support of some colleagues of mine who were doing another project with the UCC. And there was a bunch of comments going on in the, under the picture that I didn't know about. And uh, I didn't find that to be a particularly controversial statement. I'm a Bible-believing Christian, and in the Bible it says right at the beginning that man and woman, they were created in the image of God. They were created, male and female, in the image of God. And so if the image of God is male, then the image of God is female, and it's right there in black and white. So that didn't seem like a particularly controversial statement, but whew, boy, uh, I was raised uh, to treat people with respect uh, and to honor their decisions as long as you don't hurt anybody. Uh, ben Franklin wanted to put on the dollar. We have on our dollar, it says, in God we trust. Now, I think they stuck that in there in the 1950s. But Ben Franklin wanted to say, mind your own business, <laughs> which I think is perfectly fine. Uh, but people are not minding their own business these days. Uh, people are passing a lot of laws. Uh, that say, you have to be this way and not this way, and we're going to make you dress a certain way and act a certain way. And it's a lot of other people just not minding their business. But anyway, that had spilled over into my professional Facebook page. And so out of an abundance of grace, caution, care, and Christian love, I just highlighted all of the comments and deleted them. So if you go there now, you probably won't see what was going on. But it was baffling to me. It was very confusing because some people had really gotten anxious and gotten onto this idea that God is a father. God, father is the word for God because it's the word that God uses to describe God's self. Father, father. And I desperately wanted to say to them, the word father doesn't appear anywhere in the Bible. And you're saying, wait, what? because the Bible wasn't written in English. The word father is an English word. We translated the Bible into English. Had they said the word Adonai appears in the Bible, I would have been fine with that. Father is an English word, and that's our best effort at trying to translate a word out of languages that we don't speak anymore. This is a thing about our religion. 
We have a holy book. It's a good one. It's grace cover to cover. Step into the Bible out of pulpit. I can't wave it or bang it if I need to. The Bible's grace cover to cover, but we read the thing in English. We read it translated into English, and there's hundreds of translations in English that Jesus didn't speak. Does anybody remember when there was, a, I think it was a governor or somebody in the South who made some ridiculous claim that if, 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 if the king's English was good enough for Jesus Christ, it's good enough for America. Jesus didn't speak English. Jesus never used the word father. The word father didn't exist when Jesus used other words. But it's one thing that sets our faith apart because it's important. I have a copy of the Quran in English. It was translated by the Council on American-Islamic Relations following the awful events of 9-11. This group of Muslim scholars and teachers commissioned a copy of the Quran in English, a translation of it, and they sent it to every ordained Christian pastor in America. It's beautiful. I have no idea how much it must have cost them. And it was a very lovely gesture that didn't really seem to make the news. But it's in English. The Quran, the Holy Quran itself, is in Arabic. And it's holy because it's in Arabic. It's in the same language that Muhammad, the prophet, peace be upon him, spoke and dictated it to be in. They wrote it down. That's why they keep it in uh, in uh, Arabic. That's why if you become a Muslim today, you're going to go to and learn Arabic so that you can actually read their Bible in the original language it was spoken in. And that's why it's so important to them that people who don't speak Arabic, who don't share their faith, don't disrespect it. Don't disrespect the thing. Auntie Sahida had in her apartment a beautiful silk garment that was wrapped around a book and she showed it to me once. It was her Quran. I knew not to try to take it or touch it or anything like that. It's very special. Uh, and, and she told me its story. Later on, I was at, uh, in Boston attending a bat mitzvah. Many of them I have attended in Boston. And my brother's rabbi uh, knew that I was a Christian minister and she invited me up into the, the bimah uh, which is their chancel area, and she showed me their Torah scroll. They had their Torah scroll out. And it was a, known as a Holocaust Torah. It had survived the ravages of that awful event in Europe. And they'd sent it to Israel to be mended and fixed and have a scribe in Jerusalem fix all the damages on it and send it back to them. At astounding cost and there it was and I knew not to touch it because it's one of the most important parts of their worship service but the Torah scroll is written in Hebrew the language in which it was dictated so you see in our cousin religions in in, in Islam and in Judaism it's important that their holy book is in a very specific language and that you learn how to speak that language because they want you to be able to read the thing the way it was written in the first place. We have nothing like that in Christianity. The New Testament, for at least three generations, lived in people's hearts, in their hearts. It was passed 
from lips to lips. The story of Pentecost tells us that it was passed from languages to languages. They shared the story with them. They translated it so that everyone could know this story. And it wasn't until much later that it was actually written down. What language would they write it down in? Well, that was very controversial. Ended up most of it being written in Greek, Koine Greek, a language that Jesus had never encountered. He spoke Aramaic. Many of his followers spoke Hebrew. Many of them, their friends who they converted, spoke Greek, and so they wrote the thing in Greek. And that's why our holy book is so unique and special because it was written in languages that were translations of stories told in languages that none of us speak. And so we have dozens and dozens of translations of the blessed thing. And for some Christians, God bless them, this really gets under their skin. Because they think to themselves, if we could just get to the original words, the original letters in red, what did Jesus literally say? Then we know the absolute truth and we could use it to punish people, figure out who's in and who's out. Some of them, God bless them, have landed on the King James Bible as the, the, the one. That's definitely the one. Oh, I don't have to explain why that's not definitely the one. We have different Bibles. All right, now, in the 1950s and 60s, there was a big movement in the academics. They were going to try to figure out what all of the religions have in common. And if they could figure that out, then they'd figure out what it is about human beings that makes us so religious in the first place. And so you had people like Mircea Eliade, you had Rudy Seibert, they created something called comparative religion and the critical study of religion. They're going to study all the religions and they're going to figure out how they're all the same. Right? What's the common thread? You know, that to me has always been a lot less interesting than figuring out what's special or unique about all of them. Because I think that there are unique things about them. And for reasons that remain kind of mysterious to me, in our religion, it seems important to our creator, to God, that we don't have one single, definitive, final translation of the holy book. That it is something that we must all read and understand with the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Well, it should be obvious. We've got four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If it was so critically important that everything be exactly the way it's supposed to be, they probably should have just picked one and stuck with it. Three of the four we call the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Sign, meaning same. Optic, meaning view. They seem to have the same view. Well, what's that say about our blessed book of John? It takes a different view. It seems to be important to God that we be able to read this book and this story, which is our story, and understand it through the lens of the Holy Spirit. And this story of Lazarus of Bethany is wildly different than what we find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In the Gospel of John, Jesus is more than a prophet. He's an artist and a poet. He's the logos of God. He's the word of God itself. And in the Gospel of John, Jesus' family situation is 
unorthodox. In the Gospel of John, Jesus lives with Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus. And there's a mysterious figure in the Gospel of John called the disciple Jesus loved, or the beloved disciple. And for 2,000 years, the church has gone back and forth about who this is supposed to be. A long time ago, the Roman Catholics decided it's just a metaphor for the church. Case closed. I mean, I don't, that's a bit of a stretch. People think that perhaps it's the author of the gospel. But people who study the critical understanding of religion believe that John was written about 70 or 80 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Personally, I think that the beloved disciple is Lazarus. The reason I think that is because that's what it says in John. Martha refers to Lazarus as the one whom you love. At the moment of Lazarus' death and resurrection, Jesus weeps over his beloved. Lazarus is there at the Last Supper, reclining on Jesus' breast. Finally, this man whom Jesus lives with, Mary and Martha, is depicted at the foot of the cross, the moment of the resurrection. And Jesus says to his mother Mary, Mary, this is your son. And he says to the beloved disciple, this is your mother. It makes perfect sense if you understand the beloved disciple to be something like a spouse to Jesus Christ. Well, now I've really stepped into it, haven't I? I, I walked right over that line. But there's something about that relationship in the Gospel of John between Jesus and the beloved disciple that feels distinctly like a marriage. That beloved disciple, he's different. He's different than the others. He goes on after Jesus' ascension to preach the gospel. He holds a very special place in the gospel of John. And why shouldn't this be? Why shouldn't this be? I'm not a, a gay person. I'm not a trans person. But I know that the Bible is for gay people. And I know that the Bible is for trans people. Because I know that the Bible is for young people. And that the Bible is for old people. I know that the Bible is for straight people. I know that the Bible is for healthy people and sick people. I know the Bible is for people with disabilities. People who are living all of life's different aspects in their own way because I know that every human being was created in the image of God. All of them. Not just the ones that look like me or act like me or think like me. And so because of this, I strongly suspect that God put that story of the beloved disciple into the Gospel of John for people who love differently than I do. And why not? For what is the gospel if not the ultimate expression of God's most prof profound desire to be with us? Jesus is described by a very mysterious term, the son of man, the son of man. Have you ever wrestled with this phrase, son of man? Son of God, that one's 
That's not. We got Christmas. Explain Son of God right there. Bing, bang, boom. Adonai has a son. Names him Jesus. Okay. But Son of Man, what does that mean? Jesus doesn't even have a, a, an earthly dad. Joseph is his adoptive father. Which, by the way, <laughs> convinces me that the Bible is for adopted people, too. Son of Man is confusing and complicated, but really it goes back to this ancient Jewish idea, Ben Adam, that at some point God would find a way, even though God created humans, to become born of humans, right? To become a son of humans, a child of humans. How can this be? How can a God become the child of human beings? It's a wild idea, but it's very important. Because again, one of the things that sets our faith apart from a lot of other religions in the world is that our God wants to know what it is to be mortal. The one thing that evades the Creator, the one thing that God cannot be, is mortal. And to be mortal is to know the pain of death, the joy of love, the loss and the suffering of being a human being. God so desires that because God loves us so much that God can't imagine being our Creator without understanding what it's like to walk in our shoes. And so God becomes Jesus Christ. Son of man. God experiences infancy. God experiences disability on the cross. God experiences love of family in a myriad of different ways. God experiences poverty, hunger, oppression, pain. God experiences profound joy. God eats food. God tastes uh, fish cooked over a charcoal fire. They're beside the Sea of Galilee. And God knows love, the love of this beloved disciple. All of these things God knows and feels and experiences through Jesus Christ because it is only through being mortal that God can know our pain with any amount of authentic intimacy. Because God wants an authentic relationship with us. What is it to worship a God who doesn't know what it feels like to hurt, to suffer, to fear death, to have loved, to have lost love? That God is as alien as a mountain or an idea, concept. But rather to be in relationship with a God who knows the entire strata of human experience. That's what God one God loved has died. Jesus knows that loss and that pain. But Jesus also knows that God is greater than death. Jesus knows that through that pain and suffering, God is going to conquer death. To do the thing that we can't do, but that God can do, is to set us free and liberate us from the forces of death. And why not? How many of us have been trapped in a tomb in our life, days wrapped in the garments of death? I don't know how you got there. Feels sometimes like we put ourselves there. 
But I know that for a lot of people who are gay, and I know that for a lot of people who are trans, especially today, somebody else is putting them in that tomb. And I know because I've read the Bible that God is their God, and God is the God of them, and God wants a relationship with them, and God wants them to know that they're deeply, unconditionally, and truly loved by God. And so we have this story of Lazarus. And God bless the English language, because what does Jesus command Lazarus to do? Lazarus, he says in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Come out. Come out. How terrifying that's got to be for so many people today to come out. Come out of that closet, come out of that tomb, come out of that hell that somebody put them in. But there Jesus stands on the other side. And I know because I've served in a lot of different places around this country in a lot of different churches of a lot of different sizes that there is a population of people in this country who are gay or who are trans who have gone to a lot of churches and have been thrown out of a lot of churches. Sometimes explicitly, sometimes implicitly. But they keep coming back. How many churches would I allow myself to be shunned or thrown out of before I simply said, I'm not going to be a Christian. These people are awful. Two, maybe, I think. I could tolerate being kicked out of two. And then I would say, I'm done. I'm going to be a Buddhist or something. Or nothing at all. But these people come back, come back, come back, come back again. You see a star hanging over Bethlehem. They walk through the doors of the church and they think, maybe this one. Maybe this one. And I get to serve the churches that say yes. What an honor and a privilege. So I can't know their pain because it's not my pain. I can't know what it's like to be called out of a closet or a tomb that somebody put me in. But I know that I can stand there next to Jesus. And that when Jesus says, unbind him, let him go. I can be the hands that take those awful implements of death, those shrouds off of that person and say to them, you're whole, you're here, you're healed, and you're the way that God made you. You're made in God's image. That's it. That's it. So why? Why would we be given a holy book that was written in indelible black and white ink, closed to understanding, translation, or interpretation. If ours was a God who desired to be the God of all people, of all people, of course the Bible is the way it is. Of course the Gospels are the way they are. Because God so desperately wants to be in relationship with us. So then what do we do? What is the application principle? What am I supposed to give you to walk out there with? I think it's only this. Open yourself to that relationship. Just be open to it. Just be open. If you're lying in a tomb, if you're sitting in a closet, if you're someplace where they've put you and told you you're dead, they've thrown a stone over the entrance, just quietly listen for the voice of God calling to you from just outside, saying to you, come out, come out. That's it. Surrender. Be open. 
and remain open because in two weeks something absolutely unbelievable is about to happen. It's going to completely revolutionize everything. It's going to change the way that we understand our entire relationship with reality. It's going to reorder creation. It's going to liberate us from anything that we might be afraid of. I guess I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. It's not Easter yet, Pastor. But boy, it's right on the horizon. And it's coming. And it's going to change everything. Amen. Amen.